This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. Welcome to the Crafting Character Podcast. Steve Carter here, and in association with my good friends at the Ascent Leader, who really just wants to help you get in the living rooms of key leaders. Uh, whether you've gone through a transition, you've been handed the baton, you're leading, you're pastoring, and you just need to be in a cohort with some other brothers and sisters who can help guide you, shape you, remind you, you have what it takes. Or you just want to get better at the craft and character of communication. We have some amazing cohorts. We're talking seven, eight, nine people tops. You get a coach and then you get to travel into the living rooms of three different mentors and to learn, listen, grow from their experience. Our other partner is preaching today, and they've really, really come alongside the Craft and Character podcast. Their heart has, is right on point with ours, and that literally is to help every pastor be inspired, their soul to be inspired, then to be inspired through sermon ideas or exegesis help. And they've are doing amazing, amazing work. You can learn more at preachingtoday.com. And then also Food for the Hungry, who is just uh, one of my favorite organizations. They're doing holistic transformation in many, many neighborhoods around the globe. My family and I, we, we sponsor some kids through FH and just have been blown away. And I'm loving to see how FH is really partnering with some amazing churches in the U.S. to really serve uh, kids around the globe. Well, today I'm excited because I get to introduce you to one of my favorite people on the planet. And I, I know that probably sounds like what every podcast host says, but literally this guy I know, uh, he was a professor of mine. Uh, he is the president of my alma mater, Hope International University. Um, but for 20 some years, he's just been a man that I have deeply respected. And he's, he's, got this unique wiring and you're going to, you're going to, you're going to see this experience, this feel this in this conversation because he went to Bible college. His dad was a pastor to almost be a pastor, but then uh, he also got his master's in counseling. And so he brings this really deep understanding of the human experience, deeply grounded in biblical truth and then decided just for kicks to go, go get a PhD in organizational leadership, which helps him become, in my opinion, one of the best uh, college presidents on the planet. His name is Dr. Paul Alexander. He is uh, just salt to the earth. And I'm excited to have him on this conversation, uh, the Crafting Character Podcast, because I want us to talk about anxiety. I want us to talk about depression. I want us to talk about what this is looking like in the life of pastors. And he's actually done a, a ton of research on it. So without further ado, I want to introduce you to my dear friend, a mentor, someone I absolutely love, and my fly fishing rabbi, Dr. Paul Alexander. I'm glad you're here, my friend. Hey, Steve. It's so good to be with you. And and here's how, this is how you know your friend was one of your professors, is when you can't stop calling them doctor. So <laughs> we, we've been friends forever. But uh, someday you'll call me, Paul. But hey, thanks for letting me be on the podcast. I'm, I'm excited to do it. Well, thanks, man. Well, let's let's dive in because, I mean, most people don't have a wiring like yours with the organizational leadership side, with the just honesty, vulnerability, um, kind of understanding of the human experience, and also with uh, a deeply biblical foundation. Um how do you make sense of that? Is this kind of like your brain is like 33% cut compartmentalized? Like how did you, how did you come to understand your unique wiring? So that's my new favorite euphemism for being kind of dark and moody is my unique wiring. So I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to get a shirt made it. Uh, my unique wiring. Um, you know, the deepest root really goes back to watching my dad uh, and mom lead churches. And there was there was the public pastor side I saw, and then there was more importantly the at home side. And as a kid watching my dad lead churches, I remember just being um, 
curious about, fascinated by, and sometimes um, in pain around watching my dad be in pain. And the times that I saw him most upset were the times when a family would leave the church. Often a family that, you know, my mom and dad had poured um, time and energy into, or they thought they were friends. And then I would watch it. It would just crush my dad's spirit when people would leave. And I knew as a kid that ministry was demanding because of how often the phone would ring at our house um, and how lonely it looked to me. It looked lonely sometimes. So I admired what my dad did. I enjoyed watching the public persona. But I also realized that there was this behind the scenes that people in the church had no idea about. But I've always loved pastors. Um, I knew in college, by the end of college, I probably wasn't going to get a full-time paycheck from a church. I, I didn't feel that that was where God was calling me. Um, I was called more to kind of the behind the scenes support for pastors. Um, and, and that was part of my journey. The other big part of my journey that I think we'll talk about at the end of the podcast was what happened to me right after college. And that was, I went into a really serious depression for just about a year. Um, and I had never gone through depression before. I've never had, uh, had one as intense as that season. It was awful. Um, but it pushed me toward marriage and family therapy, not just because of a call, but also just to understand like what, what goes on in our hearts? Why, why do we sometimes get into a ditch or get out into the weeds? And that 10 months in that darkness changed the trajectory of the way I lead forever. I, I decided even as a 22-year-old that I was going to probably have to be somewhat transparent about the melancholy part of my soul. Um, and so three years ago, we had some tragedies here in Southern California, and I decided to be um, proactive and see if I could go personally help church staffs uh, with depression, depression in ministry. Uh, and it was at that time that I, I decided to go public with my own journey with depression and anxiety. And um, it's been rewarding, and it's also been uh, a little, at times, embarrassing. And we can talk more about that toward the end, but it's not an easy thing to do. I would much rather talk about victories and, and success, right, and high points. But um, there's an opening in the kingdom right now for my little tiny slice to just talk about heart issues. Um, so that's that's my middle middle length answer to your question. Yeah, no, I think it's really, really great. And I, I love how you've not ever lost your heart for the local church and also the ability to kind of put something together. I mean, it plays into your organizational leadership side. You're, you're president of an amazing college. Um, but but also just this desire for the pastors. And, and it's amazing, like how much of our childhood informs who we become and just the way that you painted that picture of seeing the moments with your father that the, and your mom, the hours invested and seeing the baptisms or seeing the, the moments of victory and celebration, but also seeing the moments of, of loneliness. And in a season where there was tragedy and in, in, in a season where there was just, um, some pain. I, I love how proactive you and Dr. Grana actually were. Dr. Grana was my my preaching professor in college, um, and these two men I absolutely love. But but you you went out to a number of churches to really put together uh, this kind of workshop. Talk about that because I I think I think for people listening, I want them to understand just again your heart for the local church, your heart for pastors. And beginning to engage them in conversations that for many of us, we, we didn't know how to have. Yeah. Well, so again, it goes back to the tragedy in our area in Southern California, three and a half years ago to about three years ago in a short period of time with three pastors take their own life. And after the first one, I reached out to my pastor, Gene Apple at Eastside Christian in Anaheim. Some people would, would be aware of Gene in, in our church. And I got a hold of him. I said, hey, you know, I've been working with pastors quietly on the side my whole career. Um, this, No matter what I'm doing, I'm always at least working with a couple of pastors, consulting or, or doing therapy, just because I love pastors. And I said, you know, I have some ideas about the factors that could be leading to depression. Do you want me to come talk to the staff? So 70, 75 people there that day. I didn't know how it was going to go. That's the first time that I ever talked about my own journey. Um, and I just decided to be really forthright and direct and pastoral 
same time, right? The direct and pastoral together is not, is not always easy, but I tried. Um, it was received well. Gene let his colleagues know. And before I knew it, Joe Grana that you mentioned, Joe and I had gone to about 25 churches and um, talked to 2,200 pastors in a, in a pretty short period of time and ran a really simple survey. And that's where I know it piqued your interest to find out, you know, what are the survey results? So what I did is I talked about the nine over the years, compiling my own research, the nine factors that I have noticed tend to lead to depression for pastors. Do you want me to go through them real quick? Yeah, I would love me, that. I'll just list them. Um, and I'll just throw in, the, the whole seminar is actually online. If people want to go to the Hope International University YouTube channel, they can find the three-part um, seminar if they want to see it in, in more detail. But the nine factors we looked at were um, the idea that programmatic success is all that matters, loneliness and boredom, these are, again, factors that could lead to depression. Sibling rivalry on staff, lack of true soul care, unresolved trauma and grief, unclear job expectations, addictions, shame over brokenness, and then the idea that the church is sort of an unpleasable parent. So three of those factors towered above all the rest because we asked people to rank, what do you think are the top three most nasty of the nasty nine factors? And three towered above the rest, and they were number one, by far, people said that their lack of true soul care contributed to feelings or seasons of depression. Number two, their own personal unresolved trauma and or grief. And then number three, the idea that programmatic success is all that matters, that they are their numbers, right? That, that I am the size of my church or the size of my staff or my budget. But number one, so those three towered above, but the, the highest peak for sure was pastors' um, inability to provide good soul care for themselves. Now, does that cause depression or is that an effect? We didn't get into that. It was a very short survey, but it's it's probably both and, right? It probably both causes some depression and it probably is an effect of some depression. Do, do you think that pastors don't know how to do it? Do you think it's, do you think there's a, a too busy, I don't value it enough? Do you think it's a, what's the cause in your mind to why soul care is the leading cause? So I think it's split. Uh, and I don't, I don't have data, but this is my feeling kind of in between the lines of the data and conversations. I think it's twofold. I think one, they're not focused on it and they haven't done enough research about their own heart, their own life. Yeah. And number two, I think most pastors that I've talked to don't feel that they have permission or space from their elders to go take care of themselves well or better. The, the sense that I should always be on task, I should always be available and, you know, busy is good and, and good is busy, right? So I, I think it's both. It's, it's, I need to know more about how I'm wired and what I need. And I have to create some space for myself to take better care of myself. And so coincidentally, um, just recently with my own board of trustees, uh, they, they loved on me for an hour after a board meeting and reminded me that in spite of, you know, whatever quote unquote expertise I had, that I needed to take better care of myself. And they're absolutely right. And it was an uncomfortable conversation for the first 45 minutes. And the last 15 minutes was one of the most freeing, affirming conversations, because if you have good elders or a good board, they'll take good care of you. If and if, right? So yep. you, you have to know uh what you're going to be dealing with, but I, we have to be proactive to, to create space to take better care of yourselves, of, of ourselves. So my heart, your heart. Yeah. It's, it's, it's an interesting one because I've, I've worked in a, a, a few different church cultures. Right? A couple of them were, Hey, you come prayed up to work. Like I, we don't care <laughs> about your soul care. Right. We expect it to be done, but that's on your own time. Others mm -hmm. were like, Hey, we care about you as a human and your development. And if you need time in this space to like you in your office for 30 minutes, that's great. If that's going to help, like if you have to have certain rhythms, it was like encouraged. And then some, some like even in your ministerial reviews, there was nothing, there was like a almost uh, checks and balances of like, uh, are you making dumb decisions or not? But it wasn't soul care, but it was, you know, but, all the questions were around metrics, which jumped to your third, which is like this sense of like, I am what I do. I am what I produce. I am if we won on Sunday and the numbers were higher than they were last year and the, 
the income coming in, the donations were higher. So it's, it's this weird spot, but I'm really finding that so many pastors know how to help somebody else find soul care, but don't know how to do it for themselves. It's really interesting. Well, and I, you know, I'm guilty of that. And, yeah. you know, I, I said to my board, I said, well, you know, I know, I know a lot about soul care. I just am not great at practicing it. And uh, they didn't say much, but when your 11 trustees are all nodding, uh, you know, <laughs> yes, you know, we're onto something that, that no matter what we know intellectually, in order to sustain our ministry for the long haul, for 30, 40, 50 years, we have to take better care of ourselves. So, you know, I think it's up to each of us to figure out what is my internal resistance to taking better care of myself? Do I like the reputation of being a workaholic? Do I, do I get value in that? Do I want to make sure that people see my car here all the time? Um, I'm guilty of that. Um, when COVID broke out, I wanted the first thing that people saw when they came around the corner was to see my car. But, you know, we can go too far with that. But what's my own internal resistance to taking better care of myself? Um, I think pastors think it's selfish. Mm. Um, I think they think that it's extravagant. Uh, and, you know, there's balance. You can't be gone all the time. That's not going to work. But you can't be there all the time either. Um, because pastoring is a seven-day-a-week job. I know it is. You, so so what does that space look like? So I'll tell you my definition of soul care. Everybody has a different one. My definition of soul care is it's creating a sustainable life so that both me and the people around me live better. Mm-hmm. Meaning I'm not an idiot to my wife. I'm a good dad. And I treat the people in this suite well. Right? So I work around eight people in this suite. And I've got a wife and kids. If I'm taking care of myself, those relationships are thriving. If I'm not taking care of myself, those relationships cannot thrive. So number one, creating space. Number two, creating space to think and feel. Pastors and Christian leaders that I work with are excellent at compartmentalizing things intellectually and lousy at understanding our emotions. So creating space to both think and feel. Number three. Real quick, real quick. Play that that one out though. Like, what does that look like? Is that a staring out the window? What what, what does think and feel really take that down just a little bit deeper? So I want to go back to one of our findings that, that one of the contributing factors to pastoral depression is unresolved trauma and grief. And most of us, when we have those heavy duty hits in our lives, I think of them as accidents, not a door ding, but, but an accident. Um, we don't, we don't let ourselves feel the feelings of the pain, the anger, the sadness, the resentment. So we compartmentalize it and we tell ourselves, we're fine, move on, I'm fine, move on, I'm fine. Loss is a really simple way to look. What are the losses I've experienced uh, in my life and, and in my ministry? I know when one of my mentors died, and I'll, I'll choke up just telling you the story, Dr. Doug Dickey was one of my guys, right? And, and you, you know the reputation of Doug. I don't know if you knew Doug or not. He was little, a legend. Little. Yeah, he was a legend. You know. A legend. And, he, you know, he, he was unlike anyone else that I ever sat under. And he became a father figure to me and a friend at the same time, right? When he died, I did not let myself feel the feeling of that loss. And I had a friend who's a psychologist pull me aside one day. And she said, you have not done any grief work around Doug. And I said, yes, I have. I cried. She said, well, she said how long did you cry? I said, I said, I cried for like 10 minutes. And she looked at me, I'm, you know, I'm 29 or 30 at the time. And she goes, that's not grief. And she said, I dare you to spend a day somewhere away from here and just think about Doug all day. Mm. It was one of the most therapeutic things I've ever done. And it was awful. It was hard work. And I I went down to my mother-in-law's house by the beach. She was at work all day and I sat in a big chair and I just thought about Doug and it took a couple of hours to realize that that was pure, awful, traumatic hurt. And and I think that's typical for men. I think it's typical for men, my age and older for sure, but I I don't think it's um, just us old guys. It's also young men. Yeah. Um, women, I think, are tend to be better and give themselves more freedom. But but have I given myself space to feel the feelings of getting fired from fill in the blank or having a leader um, dump on me or really typical having somebody in the church be openly critical about me because of my leadership about fill in the blank? Most recently be COVID. Right. Have I have I have I vented and ventilated 
from the awful things people have said to me about how I've led my church during COVID, how I've led my university during COVID. I mean, we've taken some hits. Yeah. So, so that's what I mean is, is space to actually identify, feel, emote. It's, it's so, it's so important. James Clear in Atomic Habits talks about habit stacking. You know, you get this habit down and it stacks and it kind of leads to the next habit, next habit. Trauma is the same way. We, we, are, we are in a culture and a time just for being human and interacting with people and interacting with a beautiful bride that's also broken because it's made up of beautiful and broken people like me. Um, but it's trauma stacking. And when we don't have the space to sit in that chair and process and grieve and have people in our life that we can process and grieve with, we're just stacking and stacking and stacking. And you just start to see the callousness that you start to see like, I just, I can't feel this. I can't escape. I got to escape. And you, it just, it just builds. And, you know, you go back to that list of nine, it becomes really easier to be about the things you can control. I can control metrics or I can control yeah. my addiction or I can control. And you start to, again, lose yourself and lose your soul. And, um, but go back to, to number three, <clears throat> you talked to, you, you, what's can the I, third one? Oh, go can ahead. I piggyback on one more thing before yeah. we move on. Yeah. I think, I think it's, it's always tempting for, for pastors and speakers to snip off the grief and, and loss process and skip to sermonizing and skip to teaching, skip to lecturing, because, you know, we're always looking for meaning. Pastors are some of the best meaning makers I know. We're yeah. trying to find the gestalt, right? We're trying to find sense and be able to explain it. So we tie a, we tie a bow on the grief right away and skip to, I wonder if I could preach about this. Well, that's fine. But what did we do with the pain? All right, I had to say that. So th- space to think and feel, space to commune with God. And, and, and I don't mean necessarily Bible study, although that may be great, or necessarily listen to worship, although that might be great. Um, whatever it is that helps you feel the master, um, for me, a lot of times it's fly fishing. Um, and I'll talk more about that. We'll have a whole separate podcast on leadership yes, and, and yes. fly fishing. And then the fourth part of soul care for me is just rest meaningful rest. And maybe that means reading. Maybe that means sitting. Um, for me, I sit by my koi pond and I just look at the fish. Mm-hmm. I just watch the fish swim around and it's mesmerizing. And it's, that's, that's part of taking care of myself. It's amazing that you mentioned the koi pond because when I was in college, you hired me to help. <laughs> I knew you were going to bring so, this yeah, so, so it's it. It's it. Um, I will say this though, for any of you listening, I want you to go back and I, I, I would love for you just to take a moment and think about this. What is your definition for soul care? Mm-hmm. I, I love how Paul just kind of rattled off this phrase of creating a sustainable lifestyle that is good for me and those around me. What is it? Because if you don't have a proper definition of that, it's going to be easy for you to put that on the shelf and, and not actually kind of uh, make time, make space to really live that sustainable lifestyle. Second is, and I think it's really important, where in your schedule, be honest, like really, really be honest, where in your schedule do you make space to think and feel? What does that look like? For me, it's typically Sunday evenings or Monday mornings. That is, I reflect on the last week. I go through the little practice on, um, you know, above all else, guard your heart. But that is just, it's a practice for me. And then it kind of, what, what am I carrying into this week that I need to spend more time hiking or thinking and feeling about? But what does that look like for you? What's the space to commune with God? When do you have that? And then lastly, and I think it's so mission critical for your own sustainability. What is your relationship with rest? What does that look like? And again, you, you can't sermonize this. You have to put it in ink in your schedule. What does that look like? And what is restful for you? And please, if you, nobody will give you permission, let Paul and I give you permission. You mm-hmm. need to rest. It is good for you. It's good for your kids. It's good for your spouse. It's good for those that you lead. Okay. I just had to say that because you oh, have good. to think about that stuff. Um, yeah. And, and you have to focus on it. And, and you know, um, before we move on, can is it okay if I share yeah. what I discovered doing doing these seminars about about halfway through? And this goes to the trauma and grief and loss stuff. About halfway through doing all these seminars, one day I was um, actually it was the largest of the meetings, a church with over three hundred staff. 
And I said, would it be okay if I just took all of you through a guided prayer time? Now, I'm already on stage and I have the microphone. They're not going to run up and take it from me. So, you know, what are they going to say? They're not going to say no. But I just felt prompted to say, hey, we're just going to do something that sometimes we do in Christian therapy. And we're going to end with a simple visualization and prayer at the same time. I want you to imagine right now that you're sitting by yourself somewhere. Close your eyes if you need to and imagine that Jesus came. And it's coming right now and sitting down next to you. And and your Savior looks at you and says, what's hurting? How can I help? And the tears and sobs started to roll across this auditorium. And I thought, man, we we are broken. And, and we don't know what to do about it. And I, I believe with all my heart, Steve, that pastors hold on to things way too long because they think if I'm a Christian leader, I can't also be broken. And yet we're all broken. We're more or less aware of it, but we're all broken. What is hurting and how can I help? I mean, just, I hope you just wrote that down if you're listening, because I I know that I'm going to just reimagine that conversation this week. Um, that is a is a beautiful conversation starter with you and the Spirit and you and Jesus. What is hurting and how can I help? Man, that's powerful. And 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 again, you're right. You it's so easy for us because we know Sunday's coming. I, I felt that early on, going. And if I open up this can of worms, I got to be up in front of people on a Wednesday night. I got to be up in front of a people on a on a Saturday night service and a Sunday morning service, and just the 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 tyranny of the weekend sometimes Ooh. prevents us or gives us meaningful reasons to make an excuse of the soul care that we need, but also those around us need to see that it's important for us um, because they're not getting the best version of us. Yeah. And I think, I think as men, we're afraid that if we start to unravel, that we're going to completely unravel. Yeah. And we don't. We, we unspool just enough. We don't lose control. We, we don't turn into whatever we think we're going to turn into. You just have to unspool a bit and, and let the Holy Spirit minister to us and not sermonize it, not be looking for how can I translate this into a message or a lecture. Just be present with the Lord and allow him to, to take care of you and your heart. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I love how this began out of just the tragedy. And, and I knew two of um, the three who died by suicide and um, it's just heartbreaking, heartbreaking all around. And, um, but, you know, you then kind of walk into 2020 and COVID and self-care, like is the, it, 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 what, what's, what like for you goes, oh yeah, that's, that's totally crossed over. Same research, same information. Like, and then what surprised you about what COVID revealed for self-care uh, yeah. in us and in especially pastors? So, you know, up till now, we've been focusing mainly on depression. Um, as COVID started spinning up, I reached back to a few of the pastors um, that I knew would say yes, or were likely to say yes. And I say, hey, you want me to do a part two on self-care during COVID? Because um, all of us that were leading anything during COVID had this extra pressure of how do I take care of people? How are we going to survive financially? How am I going to do this without losing my job? How am I going to satisfy people on the right and the left? And I, I, what I found is that now we're having an anxiety discussion. Yeah. Now, now with the leaders, we're talking about how do I manage the stress and anxiety? And the, the awful thing about sustained anxiety is that it leads to depression, right? So this unending ambiguity. So that phrase that I would utter at the beginning of the second seminar, I'd say, what has the, the unending uncertainty and ambiguity of COVID done to you? And man, it's heaviness. Because the first third of COVID we didn't know anything about anything. I would jump on webinars about leadership in higher education during COVID. Nobody knew anything. People were just talking about their feelings about their feelings. I went to four or five, six of those. And I thought, I'm done with those. Nobody knows anything. Right. What, how can anybody think that they're going to be helpful when none of us knows anything, right? So there's this churning anxiety. And I, I coined a term that seemed to help pastors, and that was trap doors. I said, during COVID, what are the trap doors that have come along and just scared you 
or cause you to think. And for me, one of them was my next door neighbor, a retired economist who is the most pessimistic economist, I think, in the entire world. The sky is always falling. And man, I got to the point about a month into COVID where I would see John and I would turn around and go the other way. I would drive my car around the neighborhood the other direction, or I would stay in my car because he was a trap door for me. It, it was a conversation like, oh man, we are doomed. We, sh- we should all quit. Let's all sell and go, you know, move, move to the desert next to Steve or whatever. You know, let's, <laughs> the, what are the trap doors? Well, you know, the income coming into the church, uh, the political unrest, the number of, of critical emails we're getting. I had lunch with a college president about two months ago. And I said, how many nasty emails did you get? Uh, and he's a local president. He's got about 6,000 people at his college. He said, without skipping a beat, he goes, I got 300 critical emails. And I said, I am so sorry. He said, how many did you get? I said, I got like a dozen. And we just sort of sat there in that ugliness of, of how do we lead when people feel totally free to load up a gun and shoot it at us. Yep. Right? They're, they're wounding us without a care. Now, some care a little, but some people didn't care at all. And, and, and there was a no win, right? So, so during COVID, we had the normal stress in ministry, and now we have this anxiety, and a lot of it was economic. Um, are, are we going to have to downsize? Is giving going to drop? Am I going to lose my job? Is my church going to close? Is my university going to close? Right, these very existential kinds of threats that we don't want to talk about. You certainly can't talk about it with most of your colleagues that get the paycheck from the same place. You don't want to pull in the, all the staff and go, "Hey, I'm afraid we might all lose our job." Right, 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 <laughs> right. Because because there is truth to the fact that we need to be secure and stable as as senior leaders, but we also have to have some place to talk about these these trap doors and this anxiety. And what I have seen with pastors and, and college presidents is it has been a season of stress unlike any others. So I, I spoke to 33 megachurch pastors about nine months into COVID. As it was just beginning to lift a little in some states, I was invited to come do a, a COVID and self-care. And I so I identified 10 put a finger down things for, for pastors. And I can do it really quick. Yeah. Right. So people, I would encourage people uh, to pause this if they have to, right? But put a finger down and and just see what your finishing number is. Now, I don't think it'll be as bad as it was for the megachurch pastors because more time has gone on and, and a lot of, you know some restrictions have lifted. But I, I wrote this just for pastors, right? Leading churches. Put a finger down if you're worn out. Put a finger down if you've thought about retiring early. Put a finger down if you've had people leave the church because of how you personally have handled the pandemic. Put a finger down if you're more irritable than normal. Put a finger down if a family close to you has blown up during COVID in, in any way. Put a finger down if, if anxiety and depression is affecting someone that you care about. Put a finger down if you've been dis- disappointed in your staff during COVID. Same thing, been disappointed by one or more of your elders during COVID. Number nine is uh, put a finger down if you feel guilty because for you, COVID hasn't been that bad. Hmm. And you're, you know, there's a little embarrassment in that. And finally, number 10, put a finger down if this is one of the toughest seasons of your career or top two or top three seasons in your career. So we do this with the 33 pastors. They're all messaging the the um, leader of the Zoom, and they ran an average of that group of megachurch pastors and the average of number of fingers still up was just over three. It was like 3.1. So I just ask people that are listening, you know, how are you? When you think about these, these important factors that steal joy and rob energy and, and create fog for us, and make it difficult to thrive. I know very few leaders who are thriving during COVID. I think most leaders I know would would have reached the top of okay-ish, right? That that would be the top of the bar, the top of the scale would be okay-ish. The bottom of the scale was, I quit, I'm out. Yeah. Right, and and the bouncing around in between, you know, in psychology, we talk about the fact that a crisis can't be a crisis forever. At some point, it transitions into a chronic condition, and then that can't last forever. It eventually becomes the new normal. And we bounced around a lot between chronic condition and new normal. And it's it's not attractive. Yeah. Um, so hopefully we're heading out of new normal into a better normal. Play, play this out for me, because if if 
I take your definition of, you know, kind of this idea that anxiety comes from prolonged ambiguity and uncertainty, and that can eventually turn into depression. Let's say I'm one of those megachurch pastors and I've got three of those, you know, 3.1. And I think they're lying. I'm going to say it's probably four or five, just me personally, because I'm like, man, those are all, I mean, I just feel like for the, the people I've been talking to. Um, and so now, now I've been living in this prolonged uncertainty with these three, three of the 10. What do I do about that? If, if like someone was listening to that, how, how do I, how do I attack that in a healthy way? Well, first, I mean, you just identified the first one and that is admit what's really going on. Right. So in, in my, I just got a new Jeep and, and I don't understand all the things on it, but I know that there are screens where if I get to them, it'll tell you everything in the car that's right and wrong. Right. And I don't understand half of what it even means, but, but for leaders, we need to pull up the entire screen and ask what's going well and what's not. And just be honest about how's my heart, how's my motivation, how's my resentment level, how, how's the joy in my marriage, right? So number one is identify, am I anxious? Am I depressed? Am I resentful? Have I lost hope? Now, that's the easy one. The second step is one of the most challenging for leaders, period. And that is to bring someone into your circle of trust and confidence, even one person, and open up. Now, maybe that person needs to be in another city. I think that's often the best, actually, um, to talk to somebody out of the area. My, my person's in Thousand Oaks. Um, my roommate from college uh, works for the church I grew up in. We don't get a paycheck from the same place. Uh, we are each other's person. I can call him. He can call me every now and then and just dump. There's something, as we know, scriptural about bearing one another's burdens, right? I, so I should, obviously I should be taking it to God, but I, I also need to engage a brother or a sister in the Lord. And that becomes a very sacred space where I've now put air and light into this awfulness. And I feel better, usually. Usually I feel better. Now, don't pick a shame-based person because <laughs> you're going to feel worse. Right. Don't don't pick a person who's going to quote you a verse or do a prayer, but just a friend. And then the third thing is and and um, this, you know, God's in the details. The third thing is to start to map a plan of micro steps, not big steps, a plan, a series of micro steps. So for the depressed and anxious leader, the micro step might be I try to get five minutes of exercise. I try to listen to three worship songs, right? I, I call one friend this week. You, you know what your micro steps are, right? My micro step recently was to start eating better because I ate my way through COVID like a lot of people. So, you know, I set a goal of losing 20 pounds and I'm happy to report I'm only 35 pounds from my goal, right? So, so what is your micro step? And the reason that's important is because we need a, a goal that is so small, Steve, that we can't help but reach it. And then there's this cascading effect that success breeds success breeds success breeds success. So once you've identified your micro goal, it's just as important to identify the most likely resistance that's going to get in the way. That's going to be a glue trap between you and the micro goal. I know this is very psychology-ish, but, you know, it is what it is. Yeah. <laughs> right? What's my micro goal and what's, what's the glue trap between, between me and that? And how do I pray around that? How do I overcome that? How do I partner with someone to overcome that? I, again, this this is so essential to every preacher, to every pastor. I mean, you you, you have to. And, and I think what's so hard is the higher you get, the lonelier it gets. Absolutely. It's, and so, so sometimes we don't have that person. You know, um, there was a season I had to buy that person and, and it was a therapist and yep. I still go to the therapist. But like, I, I just didn't know who I could trust and who I could like engage with. And I just needed someone to speak in and give guidance, but you've got to be able to identify that. And you've got to be able to find those places, whether through a therapist, whether through, and I love how you have an old friend who's out of the, you know, who, who doesn't live in the same city, doesn't, isn't paid by the same person, but like, it's fascinating because a lot of my friendships have gone back to 
my college roommates and friends that I met at Hope. And the same thing because they've known me for so long. They've known the broken me. They've known the goofy me. They've known the 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 arrogant me. They've known just the the beautiful versions of me. They've seen it all and they've been loyal. And I think that's that has been such a gift. But that whole micro steps and to use like addiction language, every pastor has to work their steps. Yeah. You it, and we all have them. We all we all have to work those steps. And they there's steps that are gonna lead back to that soul care, that sustainable lifestyle, not just for me, but for those around me. And so when you have that, but brilliantly, and I love how you did this, Paul, you identified what's the obstacle. What's the thing that's going to hold you back from working those steps? And that's the stuff where your friend has to be praying in. That's the stuff that your friend has to be asking, hey, how did you do against the wall? How did you do against the resistance? How did you do against that obstacle? Because that's that's the stuff. And once you can start bre- breaking through that, that's when, oh, man, joy f- doesn't feel fleeting or far away. It feels really near and possible. Um, Paul, you... You have um, so much that I feel like you've talked about to that I've heard you talk about is like the cave mm-hmm. and like coming out of the cave. And part of this is in your own personal journey, but like, can you just talk about that? Because, you know, and, and I, I hope that, you know, if you're listening to this and you, you just struggle with anxiety, you struggle with depression, um, you know, there's questions that you have. Um, I just want you to know, like this, I, I would love to hold space for you. Um, I think sometimes the stigma of all of this has been like, well, maybe I shouldn't be a pastor. Please, that's not what I. That's not what we're saying. Um, we want you to be as sustainable uh, lifestyle as possible. Um, so seriously, like, just if there's any moments as you're hearing this, what I love about Paul is I had the privilege to go back to my alma mater and speak. And here was a college prof- like president standing up and he just, he shared with the students his journey. And after he went, a student shared their journey. And I just sat there and I would just said, how beautiful is this? Is that anxiety, depression, the cave is actually being normalized rather than stigmatized or hidden. And there's something that happens when someone as gifted uh, and as human as Paul Alexander is gets up in front of his, his people and speaks honestly. The room just felt like, it, it, even though it could seat a thousand people in that room, it felt like everyone was like in the front row. We were all in this together. So that's what I love about your leadership and how mm-hmm. human you are, how pastoral you are. Um, but you're the kind of leader I absolutely love. But talk a little bit about that cave because I think it's really, really important for those who might be listening. So it, it's only been, thank you for those nice comments, Steve. I appreciate that. Um, it, it's only been the last probably four years that I've, I've come upon this picture or image of the cave. And it came from a time of high stress for me when I was just going out of my mind with stress. And a buddy of mine who's a pastor just texted me the, the passage in Psalms of, you know, where does my help come from? I look to the mountains. My help comes from the Lord. I think I got that out of order, but you know the passage, right? I started thinking about that and I thought, all right, I was in uh, up in the Sierras when my friend sent me that. I pulled the car over. I looked up at the mountains and I stared at them. I rolled the windows down. It was freezing. There was snow on the, and I thought, yeah, nothing. I don't have any, I don't feel any better looking at the mountain. Right. But the context of that verse refers to a time when David was running from his soon to be father in law. Saul wanted to kill him. So the only choice that David thought he had was to hide in the cave at Adullam. 400 of his broken friends show up. It's in 1 Samuel 21, 22, 23. Right. It's this story I had forgotten. David runs and hides in the cave. 400 broken people join him and, and anoint him leader of the 400, you know, dysfunctional people. And I thought about. There is tremendous relief hiding in the cave, but only absolutely only as long as we have to. That, you know, there's a hard cut in the passage and you you get the impression that he only stayed in there a short, short period of time, a day or two or three. 
And I started thinking about my own journey and about the fact that my tendency my whole life has been when I'm hurting, I retreat to alone, solitude, isolation, and quiet. Now, that's great for a day. That is really bad for a week or a month or longer, right? So there's, there's this love-hate relationship with the cave. All of us who are introverts think the cave is the best because that's where we get energy. I'm off to the cave, right? But the cave is also a really distorted place to live because our eyes start adjusting and they shouldn't. We start thinking, hey, the cave's not so bad. I can see pretty well in here. I don't need people. I don't need light, right? Um, I think one of the hardest things to do when we're hurting, one of the hardest things for me to do uh, when I was 22 was take a step out of the cave. And in my case, I had to allow someone to pull me out of the cave. Um, I had a childhood friend who showed up at my apartment. I was about a month into that black, black place I was in. And he, he knocked on the door and he said, where have you been? Because you could go off the grid easily before cell phones. He goes, he goes, we're going out. And I said, no, we're not going out. You're going out. And he pulled me off of the couch after I had, you know, told him all the things that were wrong and how awful everything was. And my friend loved me enough to stand up, pull me off the couch and say, we're going down to Balboa Beach and I'm going to buy you dinner. And I stared at him like, you're, you're, you're an idiot. I'm not going with you. And he loved me enough to wait me out until I said, fine. And I, I get emotional every time I tell that story because it, it made all the difference in the world to let someone pull and humble myself enough to let someone do that. Now, if you don't have a friend like that, you're going to have to decide as an anxious or depressed leader that you are going to have to take a step. And here's why. At the risk of doing something I hate, I'm going to simplify everything down to one verse. And I don't like it when people do this to me. I really don't. I don't like it when I have a complex situation and they say, well, here's a verse for you. It's so much more than a verse. It's a principle of health. When, when Jesus in Matthew 11 says, come to me, you who are anxious, depressed, weary, heavy laden, right? You, you who are burdened, come to me. And I missed this for 50 years, 55 years. I'm 59 now. Four or five years ago, I thought that next part of the scripture is one of the most important parts of scripture for our hearts in the world. Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So a few years ago, I just started trusting the I will. And, and the I will requires that I take the first step. It requires me taking a step. But, Steve, when, when I take a step, the Lord takes a step to me. And I don't always know how or why, but sometimes it's a person that steps on his behalf. Sometimes it's a passage. Sometimes it's remembering something good. You know, David was constantly bringing things to mind when he was down. You know, I recall, and he has a lot of I recalls. We cannot live in the cave, man. It, it, Jesus doesn't want us in the cave any more than God wanted his son in a tomb. And yet so many leaders, we've gotten so comfortable in the cave we're terrified of taking steps out. And one of the reasons is we're embarrassed. Um, I, I didn't talk about my journey uh, until three and a half years ago because I was terrified. I, I thought it would lower people's uh, opinion of me. I thought I might lose my job. I, I thought I would, you know, it's like that dream where you go to school and you don't have any clothes on, right? <laughs> so is that not a common dream? Uh, so I just went my cup, right? So I, I had this feeling like I was going to be totally exposed and what I have found is quite the opposite. If, I, if I'm willing to be transparent in the name of the Lord, God seems to bless that. Mm. Now, for preachers, I don't think you can say, therefore, based on what Paul's experience was, I should go be super transparent in my pulpit because I don't know your setting. Uh, I would be reluctant to do that unless you ran it by some, some trusted advisors. You know, I would want to know the transparency setting at my church. Can I be 5% transparent? Can I be 40% transparent? I don't know that it's helpful for pastors to be 100% transparent. Um, but that's just my own 
my own experience and, and my own um, judgments based on my age a lot. You know, my dad's 90 and still pastoring. And I think he had a class in college called Don't Tell Anyone Anything, right? So that, <laughs> that, that generation <laughs> didn't tell anybody anything. And young millennials want to tell everybody everything. Somewhere in between it is the right spot, I think, for us as leaders. So, Well, the, the way I always think about it is if you have a healthy therapist, a healthy spiritual director, a mentor, and a couple close friends, yeah. if you have that space to talk and process through, um, typically when people overshare, I can go back and go, hey, tell me about your how you process that with your mentor or your close friends or a therapist or a spiritual director. And they're like, well, I don't, have, you know, and so, so, but when you have that, the, 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 the crux or like the, the, the actual thing that needs to be shared to the community will come to the surface. I've just yeah. seen it happen again in my own life. I love how someone showed up for you. And, you know, to be honest, um, I was in my own little bit of a cave um, it, during my time at Willow and so uncertain, prolonged time of what is going on. And I'll just never forget when you and Dr. Grana showed up and, and just, uh, an epic meal and sitting in a, in an office backstage, I felt we're able to pull me out and allow me to see a lot more clearly, um, uh, which just, uh, again, um, amazing the power of just showing up. And so some of us listening, we, we know some of our friends, maybe we went to college with, maybe we've been to mystery with, and they're just, they're in that cave. And um, maybe there's just someone you need to show up for in this week between, you know, Christmas and New Year's, or um, you need to show up for in early January, um, just because it's, will mean the world to them. Paul, I want to, I want to end with, um, we talk a lot about character and, the practices or the, the wells at which we have dug to kind of that soul care, almost in a full circle, kind of um, make space for our character to be shaped, to be formed so that not our gifts or our talents are leading the way, but our, our depth, our character, our integrity is. Talk about what that looks like for you um, because, mm-hmm. you know, you're someone I deeply respect, admire, love, adore. Um, but it's, it's, yes, you have the right question. Um, yes, it is. You can drop a joke at, at times. Yes, it is. You can unpack a, a text or a complex, like, you know, therapy or trauma situation well. But it's really, it's, it's your vulnerability and your character that um, for Sarah and me, um, we just absolutely want to be more like. Um, talk about what you've done to have your character lead the way. That's, uh, that's a big question. Yeah. Um, I'll tell you a couple of things that I have tried to do consistently since probably since late high school, early college. Um, one is to work on my temper. Hmm. Um, I've always had a short fuse and, um, working on my temper has required me to work in almost every other area of my heart. Um, but it is a sustained effort to continue to try to figure out why I react instead of respond. And that will be a lifelong journey till the day I die. We'll be working on not reacting, rather responding. Um, the other thing I've been working on since the first week we were married is my selfishness. Um, I am at least as narcissistic as anyone on the podcast listening (laughs) and narcissism serves us well because it allows us to get things done. It allows us to lead with strength, Uh, but it is also one of the things that is most prone to cause a toxic environment if we don't check it. Yeah. And whether that's in my marriage or in my friendships, um, I have been working on being less selfish uh, forever. And there are times when it, goes okay. And there are times when it's not okay. And all I can do with either issue is own it. Um, so I have become committed to confession um, forever. I, I confess to the Lord, just agree, right? That Greek word is agree. I just agree with God that 
it's one or, or both issue. And man, it's frustrating. I, there are times, Steve, when I think I haven't made any progress in 40 years. And there are other times when I think, man, I've made a lot of progress, right? And they're both true. Um, in some ways, I haven't progressed enough. And in other ways, man, I've come miles. Whatever, whatever your issues are, they'll always be your issue. So take it head on and just allow the Holy Spirit to continue to do surgery on your soul. And, and for me, it's being really honest about those two things. I'm, I'm too easily agitated and, and I'm selfish. Um, but there are things that I can do that reduce those. And one is, one is just being more mindful of other people's needs. Hmm. And that's so elementary. That's like something we try to teach preschoolers. <laughs> that is a person you just knocked down. Do you see? That's a person, <laughs> right? So what prevents me from seeing people around yeah. me and, and how can I overcome that? And, you know, I think, I think most preachers, like most college presidents, at least have some struggle with our own narcissism. God has given us these gifts of leadership, um, but sometimes there's a little side package of um, arrogance that comes along with that. And my feeling about arrogance and narcissism is, man, it's easy to spot in myself and others, and it kind of stinks. And the, the odor of narcissism is, is pretty awful. So how do I put that on the altar again today? How do I put it on the altar again today? And it's just this lifelong process of what, whatever is in my character that needs exorcising, I just have to keep giving it to God and sometimes feel better than others. But to not put those on the altar, I think, is a kind of small d death. It's, it's a kind of thinking that I am more important than the Holy Spirit's work in me. Yeah. And I can't think that. Yeah. I have so yeah. much growing to do. Um, I mean, miles and miles in front of me. And all I can do is be honest and, and allow the Spirit to keep working. That's so good. Yeah, mantra that I have is honest and human. You know, and, you know, just the, the sooner you can be honest and agree with reality of the places that we all fall short in, but like um, the places where you specifically fall short and then go to work and not, you know, and, and I think that's the, that's the piece. What do you do for fun? Um, what do you do? Like just in that sense of gosh, because I think part of character formation is in the looking at the parts that I, I got to. I got to work at the selfishness, which I relate with, um, the narcissism, which I easily can relate with, but also the, the pieces that recognizing, gosh, being and doing something that's outside my everyday job of preaching yeah. or writing for you, leading and, and kind of, you know, overseeing an amazing college. What, what does that look like for you? Well, I do a few things. One, one is just try to spend um, quality time with Leslie, which for She's us awesome. means, which thank you, which for us means going out to nice dinners. Um, we go out to a nice dinner uh, pre-COVID. We went out to nice dinners twice a week because it was yeah. cheaper than therapy and it was better than therapy. Yep. Um, the next thing I do is I golf. I, I, um, I try to golf at least nine holes a week because that is pure therapy. I don't keep score. That also makes it therapy. Um, the most restoring thing that I do for me selfishly is fly fish. And I'm six hours from good fly fishing, so I can't get up there very often. But I can think about it and I can plan. Um, and, and there's something about the restorative nature of standing in water and throwing a fly line 30, 40, 50 feet, whether I catch a fish or not that day. I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is about water or that setting. Um, I just know that's whatever's happening there is, is God. And uh, I don't know if I can even put in words what, what that does. I know a couple of days on the water give me enough gas to last about three months. Wow. Yeah, for sure. I mean, for real. Well, I think that's, I think that's a profound statement. A few days on the water can give me enough gas to last the month or a few months. I think every leader and every pastor listening to this, you, sh you should think about that. What do I do for fun that gives me a gap, then enough gas to make it a season? I just think it's really, really important. I just got into fly fishing uh, 
And, you know, one, one writer calls it the contemplative's recreation because there is something in that process of just getting in quiet and in stillness and in the waters just to, just to kind of receive and be and present to align to the water, to watching how the line moves. It's, it <laughs> is, uh, I'm like two months into this and I'm already, you can <laughs> see that I have bug. like, I've got the bug. I got the <laughs> You're bug, in. So I'm in, I'm in. So, but, uh, but uh, Paul, thank you so much. We'll, what we'll do is we'll put that uh, lecture from HIU's um, YouTube channel into the show notes so that any of you who are listening and want to go deeper in to hear what he, he shared, it's unbelievable. The research is unbelievable to think 2,200 pastors and church staffs like went through this incredible, incredible stuff. Um, Dr. Paul Alexander, I love you. I'm grateful for your wisdom. Thanks for just going there. Like, again, um, this is going to be a gift to many emerging voices, to many leaders of incredible churches and organizations. Um, and so just from the bottom of my heart, thanks for who you are. Thanks for your transparency. And um, for any of you, I mean, just who might have a high school student or have someone that's looking for a great college in Southern California. Um, I cannot recommend my alma mater, Hope International University enough. Um, great faculty, great people, great opportunities to engage with uh, churches in Orange County, but also communities in need. They will equip you to be servant leaders. That's what I learned there. Um, and I still have great relationships with my faculty. Um, but thanks so much for joining us on the Craft and Character Podcast. If you like this episode, share it. Uh, go ahead, leave a rating on iTunes. Uh, if you know a pastor who just maybe needs to, uh, an outside voice to chop it up, you, you feel free. Pass on my email, steve at steveryancarter.com. However, I can serve you guys. But thank you, thank you, thank you for just being supporters of what we're trying to do here on the Crafting Character Podcast. I hope you have a blessed, blessed week. Grace and peace. And thanks again, Dr. Paul Alexander, for joining us. Thank you, Steve. Thanks for letting me be part of this today. This episode was brought to you in part by United We Pray. United We Pray is a podcast devoted to praying and thinking about racial strife, especially between Christians. Come join us in praying for the unity of God's people.